Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. At this point, most shows are winding down. Roy is just getting started. The Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Several days across this country. ISIS supported living in uh, Strathroy, Ontario, under a terrorism peace bond. He uh, he died in Strathroy after a confrontation with the RCMP, and following the explosion of a device in a taxi that a driver had called. There are lots of questions that remain about his actions, his uh, identification. And his death. And one of the questions is, how did a taxi get through the police tight security around the house to where a driver was living? There are a lot of questions, a lot of issues that need to uh, to be dealt with. And a number of questions were asked of Strathroy uh, municipal officials by residents um, last night or the night before. Scott Newark, former security advisor to the federal and Ontario governments following 9-11. He's the Vice Chair of Operations for the National Security Group and co-authored A View from the Front, which led to the arming of Canada's border guards. As you know, Scott joins us on this program regularly. Former Crown Attorney in Alberta has done uh, many things, including being a Senior Policy Advisor to the Federal Public Safety Minister. So, Scott, what is the, um, what's the first issue, the first question that needs to be dealt with when we're looking at the history of Aaron Driver. Here's a guy who had this peace bond, terrorism-related. The uh, his, his ankle bracelet uh, was ordered removed by a judge. Um, there's so many questions that, that that are just floating around in, in my brain. What 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 do you want to know first and foremost? Well, um, actually, I, I wrote a brief piece for the uh, Frontline Security magazine about this because after an incident like this, there is always what's known as a debrief where um, the operational authorities, the RCMP, will sit down and they'll go through all of the, the kinds of issues that you just mentioned, uh, including some of the stuff that's still actually ongoing, like what was the actual cause of death. It's not entirely clear whether it was the explosion that killed them or whether or not it, whether it was actually shots fired by the police. They're going to want to take a look at the specifics of the uh, of the wiring of the uh, the bomb equipment that may lead them to uh, provide some clues as to whether he had some assistance or not those kinds of operational things, but the part that I was writing about was more about the larger systemic issues because, uh, look, this was a tremendous success from uh, the operational perspective of the RCMP and the OPP and local police services in being able to stop this uh, murderous terrorist, uh, and that needs to be recognized. But you also want to sit down and ask the kinds of questions that, that you've raised and that indeed the people 
who are in that community have raised. And I think the one, if I was to start with one, um, it was uh, the fact that the RCMP learned about this uh, on Wednesday morning at approximately 8.30 in the morning when they got information from the FBI that this guy had posted uh, this uh, video. It's not clear exactly, you know, what forum it was on, but the information came to our National Police Force from the FBI. And, um, you know... So where were our guys, right? Well, and that's exactly the point. It's a little more complicated than that because the issue for me is, does that mean that the FBI, for example, has access to sites that our people don't? And why is that? Is that a technical issue? Is there a legal issue? Is it a resource issue? But I'll tell you something that, and I've dealt with this cross-border information sharing as well, too. Um, This is a sign of real um, operational leadership on the part of the RCMP because uh, they had a uh, relationship with the FBI such that the FBI provided them that information. All too often in my experience, and I've, I've had direct experience in this, where you have on national security cases, um, uh, I, I literally experienced this when I worked in Washington, uh, where they say, well, you know, um, we don't need any uh, information from anybody else because we have everything that's important because we're, you know, the, uh, the organization, so we don't want to take anything from anybody else. And good leadership recognizes, think of it almost as an insurance policy, that you want to make sure that just in case we don't have everything, we have a good relationship with other people so that we can get the information. And that's what clearly happened here. But it does raise questions about uh, if there are things we And that's the way to approach this, not finger-pointing or anything else, but are there things we can learn from this so as to improve our capabilities? Exactly. So I mean, I was, you, you get a call from the FBI in the morning, and they say, hey, guys, maybe you should know about this. Well, in the video, he openly and specifically uh, threatens Canada, that he's right. carried his attack in Canada. Right. No, I understand that. Yeah. But then you get, get the call from the FBI saying, we think you should know know about this. And then that, I guess I go back to the, the question, who did the radicalizing? Um, we have some clips. I don't know if the studio has the clips ready. Um, if we do, I'll assume that we do. Can we play the first clip, please, where, where, where Aaron Driver's father talks about, uh, Wayne talks about his right. son as a child. Can we play that? Or should we hold on and, and come back to that in a bit? Let's come to back, let's come to that in a bit. Uh, after the break, we'll, uh, we'll play these clips from uh, okay, well, Wayne Well, on the, on the subject is the, it's also clear that the FBI didn't know who the guy was. So that suggests to me that, for example, we do not yet have a sufficient uh, bad guy uh, face recognition biometric database in place. It looks as though the RCMP did, and I've seen it reported that, in fact, that was the case, where they were able to identify this guy through face recognition biometrics, although, you know, uh, I saw the photograph of him in the, in the video, and I had been actually following this guy's case before, and there are photographs of him in that same balaclava. So they did identify the guy. Supposedly by about, around about 11 o'clock, they were satisfied who it was, and that's when the operational uh, instructions uh, kicked in, which is, again, and Roy, you've, you know, you've, you're familiar with this area as well, too. That's actually relatively impressive for, you know, an operational national police force to coordinate with all the other agencies involved with the matter of hours, get a full uh, takedown uh, situation set up. Yeah. Now, the, one, what, the question, though, and I mentioned this in the introduction, and when you and I are uh, exchanging emails, you, you brought it up as, as well, Scott. 
how does a how does he order a taxi? How does a taxi get ordered and go to the to the door where he is at a time when there's tight security on him? Well, apparently they didn't know that he was even in the house, and it appears to me, based on the fact that um, they didn't know that, that that means that between when they got the notification, they were not intercepting communications at least if it was a, a landline telephone. And don't forget, this guy was prohibited from having a cell phone or on being on the Internet, which obviously was not the case. But if they have the address and, and, and you get the alert from the FBI and you put all your resources in place to, 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 to handle the situation, isn't one of the first things you're going to do is to determine who's in the house and nope. just make a phone call? Well, Who I answers? Think part of the problem was, of course, is that they, they, wanted to, they didn't want to have the guy potentially blow himself up with the officers there. They weren't sure who was in the house right. with him. Okay, there's all sorts of operational questions, which are the kinds of things that, you know, I'm sure you can count on will, will be actually asked. But it is the, the one I found probably the most disturbing of all, and I, I was very, very impressed. I don't know whether you saw it, the, uh, the media uh, briefing that was given by Deputy Commissioner Mike Cabana of the RCMP. On, on the Thursday, very, very candid, where they actually showed the video. Um, I was very impressed with that. But subsequent to that, I saw a, a second uh, briefing in London where the RCMP superintendent was being asked questions, including questions about, you know, well, what kind of, you know, if this guy was on this peace bond, what kind of monitoring was being done of him? That's something I would suggest should be looked into uh, much more closely. What kind of monitoring? Is, is that what you said? Yes. Why, why would I mean why, that is Scott not necessarily the electronic monitoring? But I mean, were there well, door knocks going on? You know, high. You know, uh, just, well, exactly. You know? Well, let me let me ask you about the the electron, electronic monitoring. Yeah. Why would a judge, given everything that we now know, which the judge would have been privy to, as far as the background of Aaron Driver is concerned, why would a judge order the removal of the electronic monitoring equipment? Just to put it in context, what happened is that he was arrested in June of 2015 in Winnipeg, where he was living, and it was for the purpose of entering into this peace bond. He was released on bail, and among the conditions on his bail were electronic monitoring. The, when they went back and they ultimately resolved everything, and he voluntarily agreed to enter into the peace bond, which I believe was in November of 2015, the electronic monitoring was no longer required as a condition. And wow. we don't know, though, Roy, whether or not, for example, and this is one of the questions I posed, did the Crown ask for electronic monitoring? Because they obviously should have, and look, it might have helped them detect where this guy was going. There's a second residence oh, in yeah. London that they're looking at. Okay? Uh, maybe it would have shown us that if he was going to some kind of a, a hardware store well, to buy the equipment for the bomb. It, it seems to me, Scott, to be one of the most fundamental aspects of the of, of keeping tabs on, uh, tabs on him. Yeah, I, I, I'm a big fan of it as well, too. And uh, I think those are the kinds of very practical questions that should be asked. Yeah, who was manipulating whom here? One of the things that uh, at, the, at the local uh, media conference, the, the local RCMP superintendent said, oh, you know, we never had any complaints. Uh, well, excuse me. I've been doing some research, and the London Free Press is reporting that, number one, this guy was visiting the London Muslim Mosque. Uh, was the RCMP aware of that? Did they approve that? And secondly, a guy who is uh, noted as being a lawyer and attendant at the uh, mosque, a guy named Faisal Joseph, says multiple people from the mosque called the police to alert them about the fact that this guy was making all these radical statements. 
that kind of contradicts with that RCMP superintendent. It does, doesn't it? Yes. Hang on. We're going to come back with Scott Newark on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. We're also going to play for you a few clips from Aaron Driver's father, Wayne, about about his son. So many questions here that need to be uh, dealt with. Why would there, I mean, the judge, sure, a piece, it's part of the peace bond to remove the electronic monitoring device? No, no. I mean, do you not want to know where the guy is all the time? And and since members of the mosque in London were calling police to alert police to the radical statements Driver was making, why didn't anybody in the police say, hey, we better check this out? So many, uh, so many unanswered questions here, and there's a very legitimate question from a resident in Strathroy who wanted to know why weren't we told? Why weren't we told that this guy was in our community? Why weren't we told where he lives? I know, it's privacy. We'll come right back. Direct, hard hitting, no holds barred. The Rory Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Uh, not so long ago that uh, I think it was the commissioner of the RCMP, Bob Paulson, who said that they uh, didn't have the required personnel or they, they didn't have the budget to have the required number of people watching the 98 or so people who were on a terror watch list, something like that. I'll look up the details. Scott Newark is with us. Just before we talk to Scott again, let me just run you a couple of clips from Aaron Driver's father, Wayne. And this, the first one is what he said about his son as a child. Aaron was a usual fun-loving seven-year-old, played with his parents, had friends, liked school. Um, it all went tumbling down when his mother died of cancer when he was seven years old. He got mad, got mad at me. He blamed me for his mother's death. He told me that he wished it was me instead of her. Uh, they were very close. Um, he just shut himself in, closed himself out to the rest of the world. It was like a light bulb went out and you couldn't turn it back on. Let's play the second clip where his father talks about CSIS watching his son. Being military, the CSIS made us aware of the file that they had on him October 2014, I believe it was. The file was over an inch thick at that time, and I saw some of the tweets and the Facebook pages that he was sharing, uh, so I was quite familiar with what was going on. Here's another one about uh, about Aaron Driver not communicating with his father. Listen. Yes, of course we did. Uh, tried to have many different conversations with him, but I was told to mind my own business that... Uh, he believed in what he was believed in, and I couldn't change his mind that um, he was doing the right thing. And if he had it his way, he would move over there and forget the Western world altogether. And here's uh, his father, Wayne, Aaron Driver's father, Wayne, talking about uh, working with ISIS. Listen to this. It wasn't until he was late in his teens that he actually got involved with the ISIS. Uh, I really don't know when he started that stuff. All I know, he's converted to Islam in 2012 when he came to live with us. But before his mother's death, like I said, he was a happy, normal child. And the last clip we have is this, listen. 
Yes, we did. Uh, we were hoping it wouldn't, but we realized he got more and more involved with ISIS with by the tweets and the Facebook pages he was sharing. And you always hope that nothing bad comes of it, right? But our worst nightmares were realized. And that from our uh, our family, our global news family, those clips. Scott uh, Newark, former Crown Attorney, former Executive Director of the Canadian Police Association with me and uh, uh, Vice Chair of Operations for the National Security Group. When you hear that, you hear the father... What do you hear, Scott? Beyond what we heard, what do you as the expert hear? Um, Not too much of terrible relevance. Um, I mean, yes, the kid obviously had some specific uh, problems, emotional problems, uh, but the reality of what we have to deal with is what uh, we are actually facing. And by all means, it's a good idea to understand how... But doesn't this take you to the who did the radicalizing? Doesn't this open the door to how the radicalizing took place? Well, no, we don't know that. And, and the father I mean. doesn't appear to have any information about that. That's well, one of the issues that I think needs to be addressed. These guys uh, make... Uh, I mean, it's a reflection... Sounds to me like the, his dad does have some information if he's quizzed more. Well, it's not, it's not in there on any of the clips that you played. And I've read the stuff, and there's nothing specific in it from him. It appears as though he was probably uh, initially self-radicalized. He says that he started studying the Bible and everything, and Christianity didn't make any sense, and so he thought Islam was a better idea and everything. I think he, we, will, we will find that he was probably one of the people who was, quote, uh, largely self-radicalized. Mm-hmm. That's why I asked the question, though, about you know what particular groups or organizations or people he was involved in uh, with, uh, because some of the associations that he had, and his father didn't mention this, um, it goes back, he was uh, openly uh, supportive of the uh, Parliament Hill attack. He was uh, literally directly connected with people who were involved in April 2015, uh, a British guy who was involved in a planned terrorist attack in Australia in May 2015, right before he was actually arrested. You remember the shooting incident in yeah. uh, Texas when they were yeah. having the uh, convention about the cartoons about uh, uh, Mohammed? Um, that's another issue that's there, is that the RCMP have identified that they, although they can identify who it was he was um, speaking with right. online in social media, the uh, the communications were encrypted and they don't seem okay. to have the ability to figure out exactly what was being said. Okay, my friend, we have to stop it there. We'll talk more and talk again. Thanks, Scott. All right. Bye-bye. Scott Newark, former Crown Attorney. We're going to come back right after this.